Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. There it is. Open your Bible to Joshua 16. We'll pick up where we left off on our tour through the Bible. Joshua 16, we're going to see Ephraim and West Manasseh, and we're going to attempt to get through four chapters in one sitting tonight. Uh, as we, They kind of all fit together. These, they're the allocation of the other seven tribes. Uh, and it starts with verse 1, chapter 16. The lot fell to the children of Joseph from the Jordan by Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east, to the wilderness that goes up to Jericho through the mountains to Bethel. Then went out from Bethel to Luz, passed along the border of the Archites at Adaroth. First of all, cool fantasy name, Archites, Adaroth, if you're writing fantasy novels. And went down westward to the boundary of the Japhletites, as far as the boundary of lower Beth-Horon to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. So... When it says the lot fell to, remember when they're drawing these, they're drawing out of two vases. So they'll draw the name of the tribe out of one and they'll draw the allocation out of the other. At least that's Jewish tradition on how this happened. So when it says the lot came up as or fell to, it's likely that they're kind of drawing these things. Remember Judah as firstborn was drawn first and that's not an accident. God's showing his favor to the tribes through this drawing process, which is why Dan goes last. Right, so there's some thing, and why Simeon doesn't even get a drawing, really. Uh, so Judah went first. We've already seen that Judah's then being in this spot. Remember, Judah is moved to the. He's the fourth born, but he's the first with the inheritance because he uh, because he was self-sacrificial with Benjamin. Uh, and when that whole scene with Joseph in Egypt, and he said, "Take my life and let Benjamin go." Uh, that self-sacrifice was an image of self-sacrifice that we're going to see later in the New Testament. And God loves that self-sacrifice. So Judah, through that honor, uh, was there. Um, but we're not going in geographical order here. When we get to the children of Joseph, um, we're going with them second as they, get, they came up. Uh, in Genesis 48:22, if you remember, Joseph's family gets a double portion. So where Judah's in the position of the firstborn son, Joseph gets the honor of the firstborn son with a double portion. Normally the firstborn would get a double portion of inheritance. So Joseph's going to get that largely because he saved all of Jacob's kids with that whole scene in Egypt. So he has two kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, um, and he's going to get that portion. Jacob specifically gave Joseph the double portion in Genesis 48:22. Moreover, I've given you one portion above your brother. So Jacob assigned that portion to this tribe. Ephraim and Manasseh, when you put them together, and again, I brought maps out so you can peek at those. This is a huge piece of territory, especially if you count east of the Jordan. So Judah gets a huge chunk of land, and then Ephraim and Manasseh gets a huge chunk of land because of how they were honored through all these other stories we've read in Genesis primarily. The best of this is then not a coincidence either. They get the position in the first pot, but then they get the lot that's drawn for the best piece of land too. So these first two tribes really get the lion's share of, when you take those and put them together, Ephraim, Manasseh, 
and Judah, you've got most of the middle of Israel being taken there. Everybody else kind of gets a little spot on the map, if you take a peek at that. Um, so verses 1 through 3 describe the southern border. Uh, this is an important border, and it starts out this, this set of seven here, because it draws the line because we'll, between what will become the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom as we get further into the Bible. So that border in verses 1 through 3 is a pretty huge border because it's going to define the division between those kingdoms when they split. Verse 4, so the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. This goes back to Jacob, uh, where he says, now you have two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you. That's Jacob talking to Joseph. And he says, Reuben and, as Reuben and Simeon are mine, they shall be mine, Genesis 48, verse 5. Jacob claims them as his own sons, and then he says, your off offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance, verse 48.6. So this fulfills what Jacob said would happen way back when. They're getting named Ephraim and Manasseh, just like they're one of the brothers in this, in this family. Um, so for here, here forward, it's not the tribe of Joseph, but the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. But notice in verse 4, they don't say it like that. They say Manasseh and Ephraim. And part of that is because Jacob switched his right hand with his left hand. Do you remember this? For those of you that were here when we did that. And he said the younger one's going to be the elder position and the elder's going to get the younger. So when they're listed here, Manasseh and Ephraim taking their inheritance, from here forward it's going to be Ephraim and Manasseh, just like Jacob switched it. Um, so they're listed in that way. And if you look at verse 5, they already start that switching at, as soon as verse 5, like the next verse. So they're going to do that. So these locations then are going to be laid out. Uh, they also get uh, laid out in Ezekiel 47, so there's some confirmation of that. Um, and this is going to be the return, the first return of the Hebrews to the land. Historically, there's three returns. There's this return when they all get their tribal inheritance. Then they get hauled off to Babylon. They come back. That's the second return to the land. And the third return to the land happened about 50 years ago. So, And the other thing is if you watch the the below-the-fold news right now, there are groups of Sanhedrin that are saying that the land of Israel should get reallocated by tribal allocations. So they're trying to identify right now through the genetic stuff, you know, swab your mouth things, which tribe people are from. And when they start to unlock that and unpack it, they kind of, there's, there's forces in Israel right now that want to redisseminate the land according to tribes. That would then be the conclusion of the third return to the land. So we live at pretty exciting times. Um, verse 5, the land of Ephraim, uh, which is later going to get be called Samaria, right? So when you hear about the Samaritan's purse or the good Samaritan, this is the land that that would come from. And the Jews didn't think Samaria was a good thing because Ephraim's one of the first to fall off. We start to see why here. Verse 5, the border of the children of Ephraim according to their families was thus the border of their inheritance on the east side was Adaroth Adar, as far as Upper Beth Horon, and the, and the border went out towards the sea on the north side of Michmethath, and then the border went around to the eastward to Tanath Shiloh, and passed it by on the east of Jananiah. To our new people tonight, our goal is to do every single word of the Bible. Most pastors and commentators just say, and here's the northern border. And then in verse, this is the east border. We don't do that. We muddle through all of this. So we don't want to skip a word. And we're sticking to it at least our first time through the Bible. 
Then it went down from Janohah to Adaroth to Naarah, reached to Jericho and came out at the Jordan. The border went out from Tapua westward to the brook Kena, and it ended at the sea. And this was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim. According to their families, the separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh. All of the cities with their villages, and they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. Okay, a few things to unpack here. Again, look at the maps. Manasseh and Ephraim got a huge portion. You could even say they got a triple portion. And that's going to be important here because they want more. That what they got wasn't good enough for them. Um, Ephraim gets land within that Manasseh area, which is why it kind of looks like it kind of cuts up into Manasseh a little bit. And they did not drive them out. So this is seen as a negative point in verse 10. And it's going to be the negative point that sets the tone for all of Judges. God gives them victory. They choose not to do the work. It says dwelt and dwell in there. That implies that there's commerce going on between the Canaanites and the Ephraimites. In other words, for the sake of money or dwelling with them, they don't want to necessarily push them out because there's financial benefit to trading with these folks. So they, this is kind of a, and it says they've become forced laborers. That's a statement, a historical statement. It is not God's will that slavery gets in, put in here. In, in fact, that's a confusing thing for some people. Verse 10 is not a positive. They're not doing what God told them to do in the first place. They were supposed to send these people packing and drive them out to other lands. Because they haven't done that, they're actually putting them into forced labor against God's will. So it's not something they wanted. But, and then here's the, another irony, they're doing to the Canaanites exactly what Egypt did to them. Just a generation later, they're willing to do exactly what was so horrible in their experience. And they're just going to turn and do it on somebody else. Paul has a similar moment when he's talking to, in, in his epistle. And he says, you have freedom in Christ, but then you've got the Judaizers coming into your church trying to put you back in the same shackles you were in. So when God gives freedom, humans' tendencies often go right back into the same chains we were in before. So they do that. So the reason here is implied with the word dwell is that there's a financial benefit. Double down on that with the forced labor. When you get free labor, that's an economic benefit. So Ephraim compromises in this situation. Um, and the bonds that they're freed from are gone. So in, in Galatians 5.1 is the reference to Paul. After you've, but now after you've known God, or rather you're, you're known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire to be again in bondage? Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Bondage is a yoke for both the slave and the master. And in this situation, they've bonded themselves to something that's entirely ungodly. Ephraim's in trouble already. Gezer is the city that Joshua took for them. So they, don't, they didn't even have to do the work to get this land. They move into a territory where the armies are primarily conquered. So they get one of the biggest portions. They don't do their job driving out the Canaanites. They compromise and get financial gain instead. And they want to get all the spoils and they haven't done any of the work. If you know people like this, they are Ephraimites in character or in type, right? People that come in and they want all the benefits with none of the work. And that's folks in the ministry, I think, see this all the time. And these folks can come in and put people in bondage. And the problems are going to come later. The false gods that those Canaanites have 
become followed by the Israelites. And that becomes a major problem for Israel. God tells them to take a stand, but they don't. That's a whole chapter. So it sets the premise for the rest of this next chapter in the story that's going to be told. But get the context. Ephraim gets a ton. They don't do any work for it. And instead of doing their job, they go for financial gain. And then Ephraim looks like this. We'll go right into 17. And the context, I'll, I'll build the context even more. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh don't get an inheritance. They're, they're scared to go in there. And they're satisfied with the world, but they never come in. So I want to look at the rest of this like a typology. Because if we've gone through this, chapter 13 was a type of person that's offered a gift by God, but they don't take it. And they settle for stuff that they can see with their eyes instead of the inheritance that God's giving them that they hadn't had yet. So you got Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh that make a bunch of excuses. There's this big wedding feast they've invited, been invited to, and they don't even show up. And that's a tough spot because those folks get locked outside, and they're not really part of the kingdom of Israel. So it is true that there are Israelites that never really got the inheritance God wanted for them. It is true today that there will be Gentiles that do not get the gift of Christ that is offered freely to them. They don't even have to win the battles that Christ won. It's a free gift, and there's people who just don't take it. So as heartbreaking as that is, that's what it looks like in the New Testament too. And, and the excuses are part of what comes with it. Luke 14, 18. But they with one accord began to make excuses. First they said to him, I've bought a piece of ground. I have to go. I have to see it. I have to ask you to make me excuse. That's the story of the wedding feast. And they got all these reasons why they can't come and follow. And they can't just be servants of the living God. And they, at the end of the day in that story, they get left out. Because the, the wedding groom gets frustrated and he's like, well, if these people don't want it, I'm going to go get people off the street that just want a free meal and I'm going to invite them to come in. And I'm going to open the door to everybody. So God's already seeing that type of person here in the Old Testament represented. Then in chapter 14, just a quick review, Caleb and his daughter Aksah, remember those two? They came in the exact opposite. They were bold. They fought with the army. They crossed the Jordan. They saw Jericho fall. They watched victories at AI. They did all this. And then the inheritance starts getting handed out. And they run up to the front of the line from the tribe of Judah. And they say, I want it all. Give me the toughest job you got, God. And that's the boldness that God totally rewards. And that looks a lot like people that receive the kingdom of God that come into it like a child. Caleb and Aksah, his literally his child, come in with this attitude that's just fresh and new, and they are excited and enthusiastic. You meet new believers like this, like they're just on fire for Christ. It's an amazing thing, but they're coming into the kingdom like a child, a child that just wants to play. And Caleb says, give me a place to play. And then he goes in, not only does he take his inheritance, but he goes to the next city over and he conquers that too. And his daughter gets an inheritance. So God just gives them extra portions before they even start drawing lots, Right? And there's going to be people like that too. Mark 10, 15. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will not enter it. Therefore, having these promises, this is 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Chapter 15. Judah comes in and gets their allocation of land. They clear it all out except for one little area on the coast. But they go in and do their job. They come into the kingdom, they get the inheritances of God, God's given them primary position, and they actually do the work they're supposed to do. And Judah stays true to God for a long time. So you've got people that don't take the inheritance, people that take it enthusiastically, and people who just get their nose to the grindstone and take it with the yeoman's work ethic, right? 
So you get different typologies. Caleb and Jula are examples of people that are doing it the right way, getting the inheritances of God. They do it cheerfully, and they get the south, the lowlands, the mountains, the wilderness. Look at your map. They get the south. They get all of it. So God gives an extra portion to the people who are doing it the right way. And God doesn't try to play fair in this area. Notice the size of the allocations. There's nothing fair about them. God's giving allocations based on this spirit that becomes a typology that we're going to see in the New Testament too. Those that are faithful in this life get extra crowns in the next life. So it works in that kind of way. God rewards those that are faithful. Chapter 16, which we just got done with, we get another typology. We get compromisers. They get the inheritance of God, but they start bringing the world in and they let the sin remain in their life. And they never clean that stuff out. And as we go through the rest of the New Testament, we're going to see the result of that. You can accept God and choose to follow Jesus and you can give your life to Jesus, but you keep all the sin in your life. There's not going to be any fruit. God can even clear the way for you and make it so there's no work for that gift and inheritance to have. But then you're going to still fail over time because the sin just eats away at your integrity. And you never really recover from that. So Luke 13, 30. Indeed, there's the, there are those where the last will be first and the first will be last. So even though these folks are drawn first, they're going to end up being the last in the kingdom of God. They're just not going to end up the right way. So then you get this other, you get into chapter 17, and we're going to deal with everybody else with those typologies in place where we've seen those. So it goes fairly, when we get into this, we get to see like this reaction from Ephraim and that tribe group. So verse 1 in chapter 17, there was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for Macher, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war, therefore he was given Gilead and Bashan. So this is done by Lot. Uh, this one's given the rationale. It makes some sense. It actually keeps Manasseh on the other side of the Jordan from uh, the other side. So if you look carefully, Manasseh is, is on, actually on both sides of the Jordan. So they stay together as a tribe, and the Jordan River runs right through them. Okay? The one on the other side seems to be kind of that one family group, and they, they stick together. So they're known as men of war in these verses. That's the rationale, because the primary portal into Israel, if you want to attack it, is to go right through Manasseh. The problem with compromise is that you're always in a battle spiritually. And when you have that compromise in your life, you're in these fights that, you, that are pitched battles. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You're not living a life of victory because you got compromised sin in your life. So verse 2, And there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their families, for the children of Abiezar, that's the group, and the children of Helak, and the children of Asriel, and the children of Shechem, the children of Hefer, those people like cattle, and the children of Shemitah, and these were the children of Manasseh, the, children, the son of Joseph, according to their families, but Zelophead, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh. They give his whole genealogy there because we're supposed to remember this from back in Genesis. And that he had no sons, but he only had daughters. These are the names of the daughters. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. Unfortunate names for young ladies. Part of the reminder here is that they get the inheritance. Inheritance went to the heads of the household, which were men in, the, in Hebrew culture. But when the case where there's not a man, it still stays with the family, showing that the male-female thing isn't as important as that the inheritance gets to that family. 
So we place that there. With Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. If you're all one in, the, in Jesus Christ. When it comes to the family of God, what's important is that you're in the family. What's not important is if you're male or female. And I think that piece is in here too in Jewish history because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you have a male head of household. What you want to have is that that family gets their inheritance and all the people in it. So there's the same God in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. It's the same love that God has. There's no recorded debate about this. That's a huge indicator is what's not in these sentences. They don't even sit and debate about it or hassle about it. Like today, we do a lot of debating and hassling about gender, and, and we don't see any evidence of that here. They're just not in that place. So verse 3 shows the rationale for it, and we have the common sense solution for it is that it just stays in the family. Verse 4, they came near before Eleazar the priest, the daughters of Zelophead, before Joshua the son of Nun, before the rulers, saying, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance amongst the father's brothers, ten shares that fell to Manasseh besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance amongst his son. And the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead, Eleazar, Joshua, the rulers. This is happening in front of the whole of Israel. So this isn't just Joshua making an executive decision. He's got his whole team around him. And when there's difficult decisions to make, you'll notice that it often says the elders, Eleazar the priest is here. When it comes to allocation of the land, the priest is actually in the first position. So in verse 4, Eleazar comes first. That's not an accident. When it comes to these kinds of decisions, the priest actually takes precedent because the priest has the records of Moses. So the priest is closest to those scrolls and the tabernacle so they can get the word of God as to how to guide their nation. Um, so wherever we have these kinds of situations, we saw these things. The daughters of Zelophat are another good example, good typology. They come publicly to the leadership. They ask for what God has promised. I like this because at the end of the day, when we have to stand before judgment before God, and we all have to, that's a guarantee, we go before God, we can call on his promises. We can go to the word of God and say, you promised that anyone that called on the name of Jesus Christ would be saved. I called on the name of Jesus Christ. I hold you to your promise. That's the typology of Zelophad's daughters. Moses said this through the word of God. So the Lord commanded Moses, verse 4, and then it says it again, according to the commandment of the Lord in verse 4. They're calling on God's word to fulfill the promises that were made to them, and we get to do the same thing. Promises are made to us. We can call on those promises. That gets us our inheritance in heaven. Also, your people shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified, Isaiah 60, verse 21. When God lets people into the kingdom, it actually glorifies God because he got us stupid humans to figure out how to get into the heavens. So it, it brings glory to God when somebody figures that out. So this is a good thing. So we got good types. We got Caleb and Axaph. We got Zelophad's daughters. We got the tribe of Judah. We got good archetypes. We got Ephraim, and we'll fill in the story from Ephraim in the next verses. And the territory of Manasseh was from Asher to Michmethath. I was going to rotate around the room to pronounce these names, but then I thought the, the, the process of doing that would be more complex than just hacking through them myself. 
that lies to the east of Shechem and the border that went along the south to the inhabitants of Entapah. Manasseh had the land of Tapah, but Tapah and the border of Manasseh belonged to the children of Ephraim. See how Ephraim and Manasseh are kind of mixed together here? And the border descended to the brook of Cana, southward to the brook. These cities of Ephraim are among the cities of Manasseh. The border of Manasseh was on the north side of the brook. It ended in the sea. Southward, it was Ephraim's. Northward, it was Manasseh's. The sea was the border. Manasseh's territory was adjoining Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. If you're looking at your maps, it's pretty much drawn the lines. And, Issachar and, and, and in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bethshean and its towns, Iblium and its towns. Um, those verses I just read, notice that it doesn't use the word inhabitants. In other words, those cities were cleared. Either they were abandoned when Israel came into the land because they were told to go, and they did. So those cities, it doesn't say anything about their inhabitants. But look what happens in the next uh, verse. The inhabitants of Dor and its towns, the inhabitants of Endor and its towns, they were the Ewoks. You all saw that coming, I know. Uh, so the inhabitants of Tanak and its towns, the inhabitants of Megiddo, see how inhabitants got added here? So what's going on with that? Three hilly regions and its towns, three hilly regions. Verse 12, yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities. So they got it as their inheritance, but they could never clear it out. One of your inheritance things in the kingdom of God is purity. God will wash you whiter than snow. You can become pure if you let God do a work in your life. But we can become saved and follow God and never claim those cities in our own life. That's a tragedy when that happens. In the typology of the Old Testament, it's a tragedy. In the New Testament, it's a tragedy too. We'll get into it. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites into forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Corruption, wealth, there's no real profit. There's an immediate perceived profit. You don't have to deal with the Canaanites. But they're supposed to drive them out, and they don't do it. So we get this example. Compromised people don't win battles when they're fighting for God because they're not leaning on God to fight their battles. It works really clearly. Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? Mark 10, 24. They can't drive them out. They're not winning the battles. It doesn't say that they didn't try. They're trying to, but they just keep losing. So that's a tough situation. So when you have this situation where you've got these battles being lost because you're apparently not leaning on God, because God can win those battles with a breath, and they don't get won. Those people don't inherit the kingdom God has intended for them. This is a tough concept. because, And it's the same in the New Testament. Galatians 5.21. Envy, murderers, drunkenness, revelries, the like, all of those sinners, of which I tell you beforehand, just also as I told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're practicing stuff in your life that doesn't honor God, you should be worried about what you're going to inherit. These people have been given inheritance, but they're not claiming it. We see this all the time. We know people like this, right? I want all of God's blessing in my life, but I'm going to keep compromising over here where God can't see me. Or I want to have God's inheritance. I just don't want to take a stand against sin in my life or in the life of the people I love. I don't want to clean that out. 
I want the blessings of an awesome Bible study, but I really want it whenever it suits me. So I'm going to still keep control instead of submitting that control to God. That's a tough situation. In fact, there's a formula there. I want whatever God's good stuff is, but blah, 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 me. And it comes right down to that thing of I want everything God's got, but I want it my way. And that's a really tough formula. There's no blessing in it. And there's no blessing for the Ephraimites as they do this. And it's going to get worse. We're going to really get a look at how they encounter this. So where Caleb and his daughters are radically blessed by God and get more inheritance than what they're given, you got these folks. (laughs) They want God's portion, but it's not good enough for them. And this is a type of person. I want all the blessings of God's kingdom, but I don't want to have anything that puts me out. Right? I don't want to ever have to go out of my way. So... When you have compromisers, it goes with this other feature that we're going to get in verse 14. It, compromisers are often complainers because there's no fruit in their life, so they're looking for things to be different. They're not content with what God's given them and the portion God's put in their life, so they start to complain. So you have the church of the disgruntled. Verse 14, Then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only one lot, to one share to inherit, since we're a great people? in so much as the Lord has blessed us until now. Okay, did they get one share? They got a, look at the land they just got. They were given a ton. They were given the blueberry iced tea, but it's not good enough for them. They just need more. Remember, Joshua is an Ephraimite. He could have gone, they could have gone to him like, Brother Joshua, but they don't. They're like, look at how great we are. Joshua's not playing favorites really, or you could argue maybe he is. But we get that this example is the typology of a bad request, where Caleb and Axah are asking for territory, and they do it in the right way, and Zelophad's daughters, out of enthusiasm, Zelophad's daughters do it the right way by citing God's promises. They do it the wrong way by bragging about how awesome they are. Right? And you can have some humor at this, too. So they start with an accusation, why have you, it says, they're doing it in front of the elders, the priests, the public. Verse 14, they complain about not getting enough land. Why, why did you do this? Why don't you do it a different way? Why isn't this better or like we should have it be? And I've told the bingo night story, right? We had a pastor that loved to talk about bingo night because a lady came into the church and she saw it was a very small little sweet fellowship of believers that just like living life together and it's awesome. And most of the believers that are in that group love it because it's exactly what they want every week. It's sweet. It's wonderful. It's God's blessing. And they're anointed by it. Some lady comes in, comes right up to Jeff after the sermon, and he goes, uh, and she says, I want to have a bingo night. Why don't we have bingo nights? My old church used to have bingo nights. And she would tell the story because you, you have to laugh at it. That's all you can do. She was going to a church that was dead that did bingo nights, she comes to a church that's alive with God's blessing and she wants to bring the dead stuff into the, this church. And it just doesn't work that way, right? Maybe what you see here that you love is because we do it the way we do it. And maybe just put your bingo night on the shelf and let it sit there and just come and be blessed for a while and see if bingo night's what you want. So that idea that people want something, they want somebody else to do it too. Ephraim's not, like Caleb's like, give me the toughest job you got and I'll go do the work. And the Ephraimites got land where they didn't even have to fight battles and they still want more, but they want Joshua to do it for them. This is just sad. We had a situation like this with a flyer 
I get an email from a lady, won't say any names, and she, does, she, she says, do you have a copy of the flyer, the digital version of the flyer? Yeah, we have a copy of the flyer. Oh, can you send that to me? Sure, here's the copy of the flyer, we'll send it to you. Okay, well, something's wrong on the flyer. Do you think we should fix that? No, I didn't come up with this issue. The flyer looks fine to me. Well, I think we should fix something on it. Can you fix that? Maybe you could fix it. Well, I'll get so-and-so. Literally, the next email was, I'll get so-and-so to fix it for me. But it was one of those things where you run into folks where they're coming to Joshua, they want more, they're consuming all these things, and they're just coveting more land, and this is their opportunity to get it. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. This isn't just, God spoke to this stuff. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. Be content with what you have. And God will add to that. So in God's, is God's portion enough? And for the greedy human heart, we have to wrestle with that ourselves. We have to actually take the greed in our heart and just rip it out and kill it because it destroys us. It makes us so we're not happy with what God's given us. What God's given us is everything. But humans always want more than everything, right? Notice how they say in these verses, we're a great people. Okay, they're bragging about themselves. Let's just unpack this for a second. If you take the population of them together from Numbers 36, those census numbers, and you add up the population of Ephraim and Manasseh, they're less than the tribe of Judah, less people than Zebulon, less people than Dan, less people than Issachar. They're a middling tribe. So they make it sound like they're the greatest tribe in the world. They're not the greatest tribe in the world. They haven't done garbage, right? They're not particularly more blessed than people that are still in line behind them, but they don't have enough. The personality here, the type here, is one of selfishness. They have an inflated self-importance. Proverbs 12, 9. It's better to be an ordinary person with a servant than to be self-important and have no food. The Lord has blessed, but they're asking for more blessings. So this implies some future favor is there because of how they've been blessed in the past. right? Think of all we did 10 years ago, and that implies some sort of special treatment. But God says to treat people with no partiality, right? You're fair with them under God's law. So no, it doesn't quite work like that. So before we get too upset with Ephraimites, we should think of ourselves. Do we ever get like this? Do we ever want more than what God's given? Are we ever discontent with the fact that we don't live in a house and we've tried shopping for a house for six months? Yes, I have to take that part of my heart and kill it because God's got us right where he wants us. So what would you do if you're Joshua without looking at verse 15? How would you handle these people? Now we get an example of how to handle the selfish people. Joshua speaks truth and love, and he's brilliant at it. This is great leadership. So Joshua answered them, if you're a great people, he doesn't concede the point, if you're a great people, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the parasites, and the, and the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. <laughs> so the mountains of Ephraim are a huge piece of land. There's a little sarcasm here from Joshua. If you're a great people, again, he's playing with them a little bit here. But he basically says, okay, go clear a place for yourself. I've given land for Manasseh, Manasseh, Ephraim. I'll also give you the forest country. If you want to claim it like Caleb did, he's actually going to give them the opportunity to do some work. When somebody comes in self-inflated and they think they're so great, 
give them a job to do. Good. We need somebody to hang out by the door and make sure people don't interrupt the teaching, right? Or good, we need somebody to clean up afterwards. If you're so great, serve, just like Jesus taught us. If you think you're that awesome, then help. We need help, and we can find ways to do that. So Joshua gives them a job to do. I think that's really graceful. Verse 16, but if the children of Joseph, but the children of Joseph said, the mountain country, oh, here it comes, is not enough for us. And all the, it's not enough for me to serve in such a humble way or to get such a humble land. And all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both those who are of Beth Sheen and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. First of all, the valley of Jezreel is one of the best agricultural lands on the planet Earth. The best on earth isn't good enough for these people. It's never good enough for these people. We want God's portion, but we want it over here without any work or any conflict. Or we want this territory over here because it looks really great. We want this opportunity to serve in the church because we're so awesome. We've been believers for 30 years. We know everything, and we want to do this. And you're kind of like, oh, all right. It's not enough for them. It's always more. And then you get this idea. I think in the New Testament, these people are compared to wolves. And they're given that image of a wolf. What's distinctive about these kinds of folks is that wolves always want more. They'll eat themselves to the point where they can't even move, right? Wolves will do this. If you're a great people, you can do some work, but wolves don't want to do work. They want to get the weakest thing in the herd and kill it and eat it and not really work for it. They don't want to cultivate the land. They don't want to build anything. They just want to eat. They want ego, attention, and time. Eat, right? They just want to get that food. They'd never humble themselves below the sheep because they are wolves. And they can't be part of a flock. They just want to eat the flock, right? So they'll take and take and take from everybody else they meet until they wear everybody out. And then they cause division and harm and they just get to eat. Beware of false prophets who come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves, Matthew 7, 15. Acts 20, 29. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and they won't spare the flock. This is the concept they're talking about, but in the Old Testament, we get a nice image of Joshua trying to handle these people. They come in, they're part of the inheritance, that doesn't mean they're outside the church, it means they're inside the church, and they just want more and more and more. With Caleb, he gets the toughest area and he rocks it. With Ephraim, they get a nice sweet area and they got a bunch of excuses why it doesn't work for them. It's like they had their excuses ready to go, right? So there's another tribe that's supposed to clear them out, they pass the buck off to them. They presume greatness. They're not that great. Um, and they have their excuses. Verse 17, Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, and saying, now this is his second rebuttal to them, you are a great people. That's gracious. You are a great people. And you have great power. And you shall not only have one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. <laughs> He's just repeating himself. This is what's called the broken record approach. I gave you that, and you are a wonderful person, and you're going to do what I gave you to do. Although it's wooded, you shall cut it down. Its farther extent shall be yours, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and they're strong. The excuse of iron chariots is a tough one because God just whipped up on a bunch of chariots. Remember, like just a few chapters ago? They were there and saw that happen. They shouldn't be terrified of chariots because they should have faith in God that he can beat the chariots. So their lack of faith 
their compromise, their greed. You got it all wrapped up in the Ephraimites. They're not going to have a good history. Joshua basically repeats himself. He doesn't budge an inch with these folks. Because at some point when you call somebody out on something like this, they either, if they're in the spirit, they go, oh, I'm so sorry. I totally didn't mean it like that. I'm totally sorry. I'll do whatever you got. And they instantly, because as a believer, we don't have a lot of pride. We're just like, I'm sorry. I'll do whatever you got for me, right? But as a wolf, they get all ticked off. Well, how dare you tell me to do this or do that? Who do you think you are? And then you know they're just acting in the flesh. They're not acting in the spirit. So you got a difference. Both Caleb, Zelophad's daughters, Aksah, ask for something. And it's a blessing. God loves when that request. So this isn't don't go and request things from people. Like we should want to do the work of God. But we have an example here where people are asking for things. They're not calling on God's word. They're not calling on God's promises. They're not anxious to do any work for themselves. They just want all the glory and all the credit with none of the work. Well, that's a tough thing to do. As we act for God every day, and we're given opportunity after opportunity to share our love for Christ with other people, we have an opportunity to share that love for Christ. That's the work God's given us. And when we don't do it, and then we go to God wanting all the blessings, that's a little bit of a disconnect. And God's as graceful as Joshua about it. I'm still going to give you opportunities. I'm still going to give you chances to do this. I'm still going to show you that. So this is a wise response from elders, deacons, pastors, ministers, or frankly, anybody who's serving Jesus Christ. When you have somebody that wants more, you just say, look, you're a great person. How about doing what you've been given to do faithfully? Or like you've, most of you have heard us say this, how about you just show up consistently for six months or so? before we talk about any roles. Be faithful, have fun, get to know somebody. Like that's a ministry. We get done with the teaching. You look around the room. We got people you haven't met in this room. Take some time and get to know them. That's faithfully serving God by building a connection between you and another believer. And maybe God wants you to get to know those people. Maybe the, he has the opportunity for your faith and your journey is with that person. And you wouldn't even have that opportunity because you're not willing to cut down some trees. Not that getting to know people is like cutting down a tree. That's a bad connection. But just that idea of clear a place for yourself. Start doing God's work in your life with who God's put in your life. And those people you encounter on a regular basis. So jo Joshua's asking them essentially to be content with the extra portion that he's given them based on their request. So both Caleb and Ephraim get the portion they're asking for. God, If you ask, if you knock at the door, God will answer if you ask from God, he's wanting to give it to you and bless it to you, but you maybe have to do some work that goes with that. So now I speak in regard to need, Philippians 4.11, for I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. That's the opposite of prosperity gospel. I know how to have nothing. I know how to have everything. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People love the last line of that passage, but they don't like to read the whole part about being hungry that comes right before it, right? I'm, I'm willing to go through anything because I'm okay with what, whatever God gives me is better than whatever I have to go through. And I accept the trade. I can be in a prison or I can be in a, in a royal chamber and I'll accept what God's given to me because that's where God's put me. And I'll take that. So the remainder of the land gets divided without issue. We have all of our types. But one last type as we get into the next chapters. 
uh, are just the rest of the tribes. Does this make sense? So this is kind of cool because we've got the good examples of asking for more, we've got bad examples of asking for more, and now you just get everybody else who is getting an inheritance in God's kingdom. And there's no discussion around them. They just get their land and they get what they have, showing that there will be a lot of us who get into heaven and we don't, you don't have to be the bold, anxious Amy Bruno to get into heaven, right? You can be, but you don't have to be. You can just serve God faithfully and do what he asks you to do on a day-to-day -day basis, and that's what he has. And that's enough, and to be content with that. So the remainder of land gets divided, Joshua 18. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. That means they've moved from Gilgal to Shiloh. Apparently that's not a, a big deal because uh, they just report that it happens. Uh, and they set up a tabernacle of meeting there, which is a big affair in one half sentence. Like taking down that tabernacle is a big job. Setting it up is a big job. So they've relocated and we still got tribes that haven't got their inheritance. The land was subdued before them. The battles are being fought. Caleb's already down, like taking his territory and killing some giants. I love Caleb. But there's remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given to you? So we have our last archetype. God's given an invitation to inheritance. They just haven't bothered to take it yet. Do you know people like that? They, have, they live their lives and they're just, they're not, they got other things to do. And I like how Joshua's like, how long is it going to take you people? I think he's getting irritable because the years and months are passing and he's waiting to go last. Joshua doesn't get his inheritance until dead last. He's waiting for everybody who's going to get their inheritance to get it. Just like Jesus says that he's going to tarry till he returns and so he can collect as many people into the kingdom as he can. And Joshua's doing the same thing. Shiloh in the Hebrew is a place of rest. So they're coming here and they're coming to rest. It could be that that's part of the archetypal image here too that we get a place of being restful and that's maybe not claiming our inheritance. So you can be in the kingdom of God and not necessarily get all the blessings that God's got for you. How long will you do it implies there's procrastination here. So we have this good question that sits before people. The battles are won. They're just not taking what they have. It's like having spiritual gifts. And this is a tough thing in the kingdom of God. There are different denominations that think different things about spiritual gifts. The Bible says there's spiritual gifts to be had. Most American believers don't even access them. And it's a lot like this image right here. So how long is it going to take for you to take the things God's given to you? And if you, don't, if you want to do a whole discussion on spiritual gifts, I don't think that's this chapter. We'll do that when we get to that chapter. But it's an image of just this idea of there's so much in the Christian life there's so much blessing. There's so much to be had there. But people just bide their time and don't claim any of it. And how tragic that is. So you got Caleb excited and anxious to get his inheritance. Those are the people that say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. I want everything you got. Then you got the tribes that are compromising with the world. They're neglecting to do the work. They're not winning any battles in their life. It's just a mess. And now you've got the hesitating tribes. No particular details. They just, they're going to get into heaven but they're not really doing anything with what God's given them. So they get in, but they don't have as much fun as Caleb. And if that's the case, if I get into heaven, I want to have as much fun as Caleb in the meantime. And I want to live out this plan God's got. So we'll go through these. Verse 4. Pick out from among you three men for each tribe, 
I'll send them. They'll rise and go through the land, survey it according to their inheritance, and come back to me. They shall divide it into seven parts. Seven, remember, in the Hebrew means perfect or complete, right? So Joshua shall remain in their territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory in the north. You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts and bring the survey here to me that we can cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. But the Levites have no part among you for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. That's from Genesis 49. Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan to the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So Judah and Joseph's descendants, they already got their land. The Levites get their land. And then you got the tribes that don't count. In other words, they're telling us why it got to the number seven. It's like the Hebrews like the number seven. And they really wanted to get this down to be where the allotments of lands are perfect. And they got it to that number. And those verses are just explaining why we're down to the number seven. Uh, so that these are perfect allotments. The other people kind of got allotments. These people are going to get allotments from God. And it's perfect how God does it. Verse 8. Then the men arose to go away. And Joshua charged those who went to survey the land saying, Go walk through the land, survey it, and come back to me. Notice how he's fixing this. Remember when he and Caleb went out with the other spies? And they all came back to the people and started spreading the nonsense about giants and spreading fear and hesitation. Joshua's kind of learned from that. So when you come back, come back to me that I might cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. Don't go talking to all the people. Like if you got things, bring them to the people in the leadership position, right? So the men went, they passed through the land, they wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by city, in perfect parts by cities. And they came to Joshua at the camp in Shiloh, the place of rest. Then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land of the children of Israel according to their divisions. Before the Lord is panim again. It's before the Lord's face, which implies that he's physically doing this right in front of the tabernacle and that God's anointing is on these lots and where they go. They also kind of fit with the prophecies of Moses. So I'm going to bring us back to Genesis 49 and we're going to go through each of these. No coincidence, the next one to get pulled is the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's favored right alongside with Joshua. Um, Verse 11, now the lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin came up from that vase according to their families and the territory of their lot came out between Judah and the children of Joseph. Their border on the north began at the Jordan and the border went up the side of the Jericho on the north and, went up, and it went up through the mountains westward and ended at the wilderness of Beth-Avon. The border went over from there towards Luz to the side of Luz, which is Bethel southward and on the border descended from Adaroth Adar near the hill that lies on the south side of Lower Beth-Horon. If some of those names sound familiar, it's because we just read them in the opposite direction. We're just drawing the exact same border a second time. So between Judah and Joseph, they're going to be neighbors. This is appropriate because Joseph and Benjamin are brothers under Rachel, so you're keeping two tribes that are kind of close. They should be able to get along with each other because they are close when it comes to their families. And then... Benjamin's also right next to Judah, which is good because Judah was willing to sacrifice his life for Benjamin. So you're putting him right between these two tribes. This is a key spot. Then the border extended around the west side to the south and from the hill that lies before Beth Horon southward, and it ended at Kirath Baal, which is now Kirath Jerem, a city of the children of Judah. This was the west side, now the south side. South side began at the end of Kirath Jerem, and the border extended on the west. 
and went out to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah. And the border came down the end of the mountain that lies before the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is the valley of Rephium to the north, descended on the valley of Hinnom on the side of the Jebusite city on the south, descended to Enrogel. Again, these names to the Hebrews are all familiar. It's like saying your border is going to start at White Bear. It's going to go up to Lino Lakes, all the way over to Anoka, down to 494, and back over to White Bear. I mean, these are names and terms that would have just resonated with Hebrews because they lived in this area. Verse 17, and it went around from the north, went out to en en Shemesh and extended towards Galiloth, which is before the ascent of Adumun, and descended to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. Then it passed along the north side to Arabah and went down from Arabah. The waters of Arabah are famous and good for drinking water. And the border passed along the north side of Beth Hagla. Again, good for the pigs there. And the border extended the north bay to the Salt Sea and at the south end of the Jordan. This was the southern boundary. And the Jordan was the border on the east side. This was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin, according to the boundaries all around, according to their families. Benjamin is beloved, honored, first of the seven to get drawn. God's giving them an inheritance, and it's a magnificent inheritance right in between the two largest tribes, which means they get the trade routes between those two tribes. Benjamin's going to be blessed in this spot. We get lots of detail for Benjamin, more detail than any of the seven. Very small piece of territory, lots of detail on how the lines get drawn. Verse 21. Now the cities of the tribe of the children of Benjamin, according to their families, were Jericho, Beth Hagla, Emek, Keziz, Beth Arabah, Zemarim, Bethel, Avim, Para, Oprah. She has a TV show. Shefer, Amonai, Ophni, Gaba, the 12 tribes in their villages, Gibeon, Ramah, Be'eroth, Mizpah, Shepherah, Moza, Rechem, Ifpel, Taralah, Zela, Elaf, Jebus. Again, notice the which is Jerusalem. They go out of their way with that city. Hmm, wonder why. Gibeath and Kirjath, the 14 cities were their villages. This was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin according to their families. Uh, he sends them out to these cities. They inherit them. There's a lot of cities here. God's putting this detail in here because it's like an invitation to archaeologists. Prove the Bible wrong. And lots of opportunities to do so. They've yet to find one and he sends them to the cities they're supposed to go to. Kind of sounds like when Jesus sends out the disciples and he sends them to cities, right? And, and he sends them out to preach the kingdom of God, to heal the sick. Their job is to go into these cities and institute the worship of Yahweh and to have that be how these cities operate. And they do so. Then we get Simeon's inheritance with Judah. The second lot comes out for Simeon. For the tribe of Simeon, children of Simeon, according to their families, and their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. This is important. In, in Genesis 49, 7, uh, they were, for their cruelty, taken out of their spot as the second born. So they're given autonomy over cities, but they're ultimately under Judah's rule, which fulfills the fact that Judah would be the lion and would oversee or have rule over another tribe. Simeon doesn't get the inheritance of the land. They just get cities to live in. So that's the point they're making there in, at the end of verse 1, is they're not actually getting an, an inheritance of land. So they're not going to get land, they're going to get cities. Verse 2, they had in their inheritance Beersheba, Sheba, Moladah, Hazar, Shual, Bala, Ezem, Elpholad, Bethul, Hormah, Ziklag, Beth Markabath, Hazar, Susa, Beth Lebayath, and Sherohin, 13 cities in their villages, 
Ain, Rimen, Ether, Ashen, four cities and their villages, and all the villages that were around these cities as far as Baalath, Be'er, Ramah to the south. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families. The inheritance of the children of Simeon was included in the share of the children of Judah, for the share of the children of Judah was too much for them. In other words, Judah got more land than they could fill up on their own. So they got more territory than they had people to fill cities. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of that people. They still get drawn. Last point on this is they're saying and their villages. This means basically that there would be cities that were kind of the fortress city in an area, but they would have villages all around them, a lot like kind of medieval Europe. So they don't name each of the little villages, but they do name the main city in the middle. Land of Zebulon. Genesis 48, 13 says that Zebulon would be fishers or people of the water. This fulfills that prophecy from Genesis 48, 13 because they get land along the water. The third lot came out for the children of Zebulon according to their families and the border of their inheritance was as far as Sarid. Their border went, around, went toward and west and to Marlah and went to Dabasheth and extended along the brook that is east of Joknim. And then Said, it went eastward towards the sunrise, <laughs> towards the sunrise, along the border of Chifloth Tabor, and went out towards Dabareth, bypassing Japhia. And from there it passed along the east of Gath Hefer, towards F. Kazan, and extended to Rimon, which borders on Nia. Then the border went around it to the north of the side of Hanathon, and it ended in the valley of Jiphthath El, and it included were included were. Katath, Nahalel, Shimron, Idalel, Bethlehem, 12 cities in their villages. This was the inheritance of the children of Zebulon according to their families. These cities with their villages. So not a lot to add here. They get their inheritance. They move in. They're doing God's work. Nothing flashy, nothing fancy. They're not Billy Graham, but they're people that share their love and their, their faith with other people. They claim their cities. They do their job. No indication that they left Canaanites. So they're coming in, they're driving out the Canaanites, they're doing their thing. Land of Issachar, between Manasseh and Naphtali, the valley of Jezreel, that farmland that Ephraim wanted, uh, Issachar is going to get that farmland. Genesis 14 and 15 implies that Issachar would be farmers or people of the land. They actually get that land and this fulfills that prophecy. The fourth lot came out to Issachar for the children of Issachar, according to their families, and their territory went to Jezreel, included Chesaloth, Shunem, Haphrim, Shion, Anaharoth, Rabbath, Kishon, Abaz. This is where I'm self-conscious that we're recording because my mispronunciation, mispronunciations are forever recorded. Remeth and Ganem, Enhada, Beth Pazez, and the border reached to Debor, Shahazima. That's a great name. I just like that one. It sounds like a superhero. Beth Shemeth, the border ended at Jordan, 16 cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Issachar, according to their families, the cities, and their villages. Um, when we go to Asher next, Dan and Gad are next in the birth order. They get skipped. So when they're drawn into that pot and they're pulling out, they're missing two, um, and they're going to go straight to Ashur. Um, Gad already has their allotment, and Dan just gets skipped, and he's going to go last, and we'll see why in a second. The land of Asher, the coastal area, this is kind of um, on your map. It's the northwest corner of Israel. It's outstanding farmland, farmland by, by Mount Carmel. 
Uh, Genesis 49.20 uh, puts them kind of right in this territory. Uh, the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families. It's their territory included Helkath, Hali, Betan, Aksaf, Amalek, Amad, Mishal. It reached to Mount Carmel westward along the brook Shahor, Libnath. It turned toward the sunrise to Beth Dagon, which means it went west. And it reached to Zebulon in the valley of Jiphath El, and then northward beyond Beth Emek to Na'il, passing Kabul, which is on the left, including Ebron, Rehab, Haman, Cana, as far as greater Sidon. And the border turned to Ramah and to the fortified city of Tyre. And then the border turned to Hosa and ended at the sea by the region of Akzib. Also, Uma, Aphek, Rehob were included, 22 cities and their villages. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families, these cities with their villages. <sighs> Note the city of Tyre here is not Tyre and Sidon. That historically places this when the Bible says it happened. Because later on, Sidon gets to be a bigger and bigger city, and later on, it's just called Sidon, and Tyre becomes the smaller city and doesn't get mentioned. So Tyre and Sidon are what we'd call historical markers. They're things where you can start to date the Bible according to when things happen, not just in biblical records, but extra biblical records from other civilizations. So the fact that it says Tyre there is one of the indicators that it happened when the Bible says it happened. The land of Naphtali goes next. Naphtali is kind of blessed. They get the Sea of Galilee. So when you see the Chemeroth in here, uh, they're going to get that region. Um, it is a place that would be like lake life. So when we went up to the lake and we just hung out by the lake, Sea of Galilee is beautiful, but it's known for being kind of lake country. So the people up there are blessed. They're admired because they got fish from the sea. They got beautiful uh, pastures to do their livestock and to farm. It's a relaxed life with very little conflict. Um, in Genesis 49, 21, Naphtali is said that they would be admired and people would admire them in the prophecy. So this could be seen as fulfilling that too. Verse 32. The sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali for the children of Naphtali according to their families and their border began at, their border began at Heleth and closed the territory from Terebinth tree to Za'aninam or however you say that Adami, Nekeb, and Jabneil, as far as Lakum, and it ended at the Jordan. Verse 34. From Helaf to the border extended westward to Asnath Tabor and went out from there towards Hukok. It had joined Zebulun on the south side and Asher on the west side. It ended at Judah by the Jordan towards the sunrise, and the fortified cities of Zidim, Zir, Hamath, Rakoth, Chinnereth, Adama, Ramah, Hazor, Kedesh, Adri, and Hazor, iron. <laughs> just, just iron. Migdal El, Horam, Beth Anath, Beth Shemesh, 19 cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Naphtali, according to their families, the cities and their villages. Villages. Jesus does almost all of his ministry in this territory. It is one of the most beautiful on earth, but another one of the reasons why you could say they're blessed or admired is because this is the territory from which Jesus does his ministry. He's born in Bethlehem, which is another tribe. He does his ministry here, and Judah gets Jerusalem, which is in the southern part. So these are three tribes that are seen as having favor from God um, by the early Christians, that these, this elevates them. Then we get to the last tribe, Dan. Hmm. It's important to note, and we'll get here too, the seventh lot comes out on your map. It says Philistines to the west of Judah. 
That was Dan's territory, but notice that Dan doesn't have land in that territory. They get a little circle way up in the north of the map. So this kind of tells that story. The rest of the story gets told in the book of Judges, so we'll get to it when we get there. But they don't get the land that they were told to get. They have to go get something else because they're not able to move in. Verse 40, the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families. And the territory of their inheritance was Zorah, Eshtael, Urshemesh, Sha'alaban, oh my goodness, Sha'alaban, Aijalon, Jephlah, Elon, I'm glad I make Grant laugh, Timnan, Tim, Timna, Akron, Eltekeh, Gibbethon, Baalath, Je this is just tongue twisters, Jehud, Beni Barak, Gathrimmon, Mizarkon, and Rakon, with the region near Joppa. And the border of the children of Dan went beyond these. When it says beyond these there, it's like it went past them or it went out from under them. In the Hebrew, it implies that the border went out from under, under them. Think of it like standing on a skateboard when you don't know how to skateboard. And the skateboard goes out from under you. So that's the implication of the Hebrew word there. Their border went out from under them. Like they couldn't get their border or they couldn't get control of their borders. Um, and that's the implication there. So it went... Uh, because the children of Dan went up to fight against Leshem and they took it and they struck it with the edge of the sword and took possession of it and dwelt in it. So they actually went the opposite direction of where they should have gone and they took a city by force to the north that they shouldn't have, they weren't told to go take. They called Leshem Dan after the name Dan of their father. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan according to their families, these cities with their villages. So Dan gets a home, but it's not where God initially wanted them to be. We don't get the full story here. We get it in Judges. Um, and it becomes, uh, Dan becomes kind of nothing, right? So in the prophecy in Genesis 49, verse 16 through 18, Dan is going to become a judge. One way to read that prophecy is they would be judges over the tribe. But it doesn't say that. It kind of has, they'll be a judge. And so the only thing that really comes out of the tribe of Dan for the rest of the Old Testament is one judge named Samson is a Danite. So they fight, they show up in different places, but the only real marker of this tribe is a singular judge comes from this tribe. And Samson's not particularly the finest of people. So not exactly an exemplary judge, but that's what we get. So now, last but not least, Joshua gets his inheritance. Uh, he doesn't take preference over the tribes. I like this. He could have claimed first dibs as Joshua, and Caleb came in and claimed his first dibs, as the other one of the two good spies. But Joshua just doesn't do that. He lets all the tribes have first dibs. I think this is wonderful. And he takes his land, you'll notice when we get here, in the mountains of Ephraim. He takes his land with his people or with his tribe, just like anybody else. He doesn't give himself preferential treatment at all, and he even settles with the compromisers. Verse 49, when they made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua the son of Nun. Joshua doesn't even claim it for himself. I'll take whatever you guys want to give me. So the people of Israel get together and say, as our leader, we want to bless you and we're going to give you this territory. Verse 50, according to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for. There is no record of the word of the Lord giving Joshua a city. So this must mean that they went to the tabernacle, talked to the priests, but Joshua doesn't record it because he wasn't there when this happened. But they're just saying... The word of the Lord says, this is your city, and he trusts them in that. 
they gave him the city which he asked for, Timnath Sarah in the mountains of Ephraim, and he built the city and he dwelt in it. Joshua goes in, he works with his own hands, he, build his, he builds his own city, and then he dwells in the place that he built. Um, they're going to bury him there too in Joshua 24 verse 30. They're going to bury him in the spot where he was planted. Timnath Sarah in the Hebrew means the portion of the sun. Another small indication that Joshua is a reflection of Jesus and that there's a connection there. Verse 51, these were the inheritance which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of Israel. So the whole leadership team, three-part government, right? There's a priesthood, there's an executive branch, and there's a congressional branch. Fathers of the tribes of Israel of, uh, divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So they made an end of the dividing of the country. We're there. We got through it. So at the beginning, you saw something like verse 21. At the beginning of the seven, now you see another verse. It bookends it. That's a nice little package for us. Here's these other seven tribes. There isn't a lot of story to go with them. It's just where they got their land. And that's what gets allotted. So the kingdom of God is now formed. The inheritance is given. And we've landed there. Um, and it's all done before the Lord. What's going to come next week is we're going to get to chapter 20, which is why I wanted to apply through four chapters this week. To our new folks, I'm so sorry. The, the, normally there's a lot more narrative. In these chapters, it's just cities, allocations, and borders. So if you liked it this week, you are blessed. And that's amazing for you. Um, but we're going to get into the cities of refuge next week and where they get allocated and picked. If you remember back from Numbers, the cities of refuge are a big deal. They're an image of God's grace that's going to get planted throughout the kingdom of God and throughout Israel. And that image is a really important thing. So let's say a word of prayer, and then we'll have some discussion. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for the care and the detail that you put in to the inheritance of the people of God. Lord, in your spirit, we love that you've made us promises. And Lord, we're ready to claim those promises. Help us, Lord, to be more like Caleb, bold, willing to do the work, willing to chip in and, and take on the toughest battles and the toughest fights. Lord, help us to humble ourselves, to be content with the allocation you give us. Lord, help us to get rid of any part of the Ephraim greed that would stir up in our hearts where we want more than what you've put in our life. Lord, help us to be faithful in the small things so that you can trust us with more. Lord, we thank you for the tribes that just took what they were given and did the work they were told to do and successfully claimed the land that you had them claim. So Lord, we want to be like that. Our small little Bible study, uh, we want to faithfully do the work you've given us to do and to do it with cheerful hearts and to be glad in doing it. Lord, thank you for the patience and the endurance on the 4th of July on a hot day uh, of just this group of brothers and sisters that want to study the word so bad that we'll just do it together and we'll get through these chapters. Thank you for the endurance that creates in us because we're pursuing the prize and we're running the race. And we want to hear every word that you have for us in the Bible. So we thank you for that gift and the treasure that the Bible is. We thank you that it holds up to scrutiny and it has for thousands of years and that it, it can withstand any critique that the world wants to throw at it, Lord. And we just hold and, and elevate your word uh, in our lives and we, and we humble and submit ourselves to it. Uh, thank you for that blessing and be with us tonight as we fellowship and as we play, pray, Lord. May your spirit just be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. 
screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media. 